heaven. Don't you know each cloud contains banners from heaven? You'll find your fortune falling all over town. Be shining your umbrella. He's up, 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 upside down and trading for a package of sunshine and ravioli. Macaroni. If you want the thing you love, you did it. Congratulations. World's best cup of coffee. Great job, everybody. It's great to meet you. Hi. Now come over here, boy. Sam. And every time it rains, it rains. And don't you know it's confident? Every time it rains, it rains. You. Oh, yeah, sure. He uh, just got off the cell phone with me. You did? So, go on. Go on with what? Well, I, are you going to sing a song or something, or can I just go back to work? A song? Uh, yeah. Anything for you, Dad. Um, I, I'm, I'm here with my dad, and we never met, and he wants me to sing him a song. <laughs> And, uh, so I'm here now. I found you, Daddy. And guess what? I love you. I love you. I love you. Wow. That was weird. It's me, your son. Who sent this Christmas gram? What's a Christmas gram? I want one. I think we should call security. Good idea. I like to whisper, too. It's okay, Walter's my father. Well, your dad's busy right now. Okay, I'll come back later. Yeah, you know, you're not gonna come back for a while, okay? You're gonna go back to Sandland. Okay! Yeah, why don't you go back to Gimbal's? Michael! It's me, buddy! You know that guy? No, I've never seen him before. It's me, buddy! Your brother! Good morning. Oh, we could just 
keep watching if you'd like. Um, I, I feel like that might be a win, um, especially in this particular case. What a, what a wonderful, wonderful, whimsical little movie this, uh, uh, this elf movie is, right? But more than just wonderful and whimsical, and I know there's some of you skeptics out here like, I don't like Elf, it's a dumb movie. Oh, I'm so sorry, you'll come around at some point. Um, but um, what, I, what I do love so much about this movie, besides its entertainment value, uh, is the incredible pictures that it paints that start helping us connect to and understand some things about the reality in which we live as we encounter the kingdom of God. I don't know that a movie that I have found better captures the collision between two worlds that oppose one another like the, uh, this movie does in its beginnings. When uh, Elf shows up in New York and you have this stark contrast between the North Pole's value system and the way that things function there and the, the internal realities of what it means that you are from the North Pole and you get to New York City. That if, if there's anything good out in the world, it's probably been unraveled in New York City. You know what I'm saying? And you're like, what? Is it no, I just mean like, it's a place with a lot of skepticism and a lot of just getting used to weird people. Have you ever been to New York City? Like it's eventually you're like, it's just, it's so much noise and movement and people and weird and crazy. And eventually you're just like, I give up. I've always said when we're in New York City, great place to visit. Uh, but man, to live there, I think, you, I, think I might die, right? Just because it's so overwhelming. And, and to have this moment where this character shows up in New York City coming from a magical place and then just with deep and beautiful authenticity lives out the magical place in New York, you sort of see the weirdness, don't you? Did you feel it? I don't know if you guys know this. Uh, some of you elf people out there would be uh, thrilled to hear this. So they, they made a, a little you know, making of elf thing as they always do. And it turns out that the scenes that you watched in New York City, where he's running around and he's like waves at uh, the person and all that, they couldn't figure out, the director couldn't figure out how to set New York City up to film that. So they took a camera guy, no joke, and they put him in an elf suit and all that stuff happened at random. Going through the tunnel, random. The guy in the red suit that he's like, hi, that looked like Santa, it was a legit guy in New York City. He had no idea. Uh, you know, the, the taking of the little things, it's legit. These people had no idea what was happening. So when you see the coffee shop scene and they're like, he's like, great job, guys. And you see their faces, they're not acting. <laughs> they're not acting. It would be like me walking downtown Winter Garden in an elf suit, going into Oxum Coffee and starting to scream at the top of my lungs, world's best cup of coffee. It would be weird. But the thing in New York that was crazy is he did this before the elf movie existed. So if I did it in downtown Winter Garden, what would people do? They'd say, oh, it's the elf movie. But when he did it, people were like, who is this? So actually, isn't it beautiful that the intent of those scenes to demonstrate the collision between two worlds that are inside out and upside down from each other, they sure did their job well. And then even in the scene with dad and the scene with brother, uh, if you don't know that elf is from the North Pole, 
If you don't think that that is true and you encounter him, it's just weird, isn't it? And then your propensity, rightly so, is to reject this weirdness because its value system opposes what you know to be normal and re regular and safe. The thing that we have as an audience to this movie that is advantageous to our experience is that we have knowledge that the people encountering Elf at first in this movie do not have, right? So movies do this different ways sometimes. Sometimes they have the audience without the knowledge, the secret knowledge, so that you're experiencing the unfolding reality with the characters in the movie. So let's say, for example, the movie started out not in the North Pole with Elf with Santa, but it actually just started out in New York City. We, the audience, might go, what's going on? It's super weird. There's an adult man in an elf suit running around New York City. But because we've been given a piece of knowledge, we have a, a, a seeing that the, odd, the, the characters in the movie don't have, we actually now watch them discover, and we're like, oh, just wait till you find out he's actually from the North Pole. When you find that out, you're suddenly going to be like, wow. And the movie then progresses with this progressive discovery. This reality that the Elf movie, as we said last week, puts a little shadow forth for us. Like all Christmas movies, they put a shadow of the real story that has unfolded because that's how we humans work. We have the real story of our real world and our real life and our real savior. And then the Christmas stories try to shadow that without realizing they're shadowing it because the Christmas season holds within it the, the shadows of the value system of the kingdom of God. But we should acknowledge, and it would be helpful for us as we continue to seek ways to prepare our hearts and minds for worshiping God fully as we approach Christmas and all that it represents, we should remind ourselves of how weird, how inside out and upside down God's kingdom is in comparison to ours. You see, I think sometimes when we have traveled with God long enough, like many of us here, we have followed him for a period of time. We have read the value systems and realities of his kingdom. We have gotten to know him. We forget how strange the things he says really are when they are confronting the values and world in which we live. And immediately our brains go to, yeah, that world out there. But I'm talking about our world, our humanity, our propensities, our way. And when we realize that collision and all that it took on God's behalf to awaken us to see rightly, we begin to find another layer of the mercy of God toward us, which stirs our hearts toward worship. Let me explain what I mean. So, as it turns out, as the story of God unfolds through scripture of the fact that our world got lost. And remember, we talked about this last week. Didn't just lose our way. We died as the virus of sin entered our story and death began to become the, the outcome, the fruit, the reality, the payment for sin. And as that happened, God begins to tell a story in what we know of as the Old Testament. So before the arrival of Jesus into our world. So think of that in terms of before the arrival of Elf into New York City. 
Imagine if a letter was sent to New York City to say, there's someone coming. He's going to seem strange to you, but he's actually coming from an extraordinary kingdom that is going to completely reorder and write the, 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 the difficult, terrible, horrible things about this world. We actually had that opportunity as a human race because God, in his word, began to say things of this coming Messiah and, and, and what he would be like, what we should expect. And he said them in such a way that if we took it at face value and believed what he said, then we would recognize immediately when Jesus showed up. And we'd be like, there he is. And as he lived his life, we would go, that's it, that's it. But it didn't quite turn out that way. But in order to understand that, let us begin by reading what the clarity was that we received as a human race prior to the arrival of Jesus. So think about this, right? The whole human race was given the same glimpse you as an audience were given in Elf. You saw the North Pole before Elf arrived in New York. So when Elf arrived in New York and he said to his dad, remember the scene when he's like, I bet you came from the North Pole. And he's like, I did. Did Santa call you? Elf was being legit, right? And you as the audience are like, no, he's, he's for real. He actually did. But the dad didn't know, so it's just crazy. We got some stuff from God that should have caused us and when Jesus arrived to be able to go, got it. Listen to this. This is out of Isaiah. Isaiah is writing. This is in the Old Testament. This is before Jesus came. And this is what he says. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. We have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Wow, it's awesome, right? A king is coming who's going to reign on a throne, and he's going to be mighty God, wonderful counselor, supreme reigner. And what is he coming to bring? Peace and, and, and well-being to his people. That's what he said, right? So we're like, okay, check, got it. Then in Isaiah chapter 61, that was in Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 61, he says, Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's speaking of one who's going to come. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort those who mourn. He talks about the vengeance of God, meaning that he's bringing both mercy and justice. Wherever there are wrongs, they're going to be righted. Don't you want a king who's going to come right all the wrongs? You do as long as you're not the wrong. But hey, we, we were confused about that. But yes, we want that, right? Come on, bring it on. So we have this glimpse. 
like an audience of a movie, realizing one is coming and this is what we should expect. Then Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, and he writes these words about this same one. Verse 3 of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. What that means is that we looked at his life and his suffering and made the assumption he's done something wrong and God is mad at him. You with me? We, we esteemed him as cursed by God because we looked at his life and according to our world, Someone suffering like that is not strong, is not powerful, is not doing what's right, is not a king. He is smitten. He is stricken by God. You with me? Now look at this. Surely, verse 4, he has, dis- he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. This is in the Old Testament. So what we realize is that already in the Old Testament, God is giving us, the human race, and the people of that time, a clarity of what to expect when Jesus comes. He is going to be this king who is coming, like we talked about last week, to conquer something bigger than we can imagine, right? Sin and death. And yet, in the way that he's going to conquer it, it seems there's going to be some weirdness. You know what I'm saying? He's going to seem to us uh, afflicted, seem to us weak, seem to us like it's not going well for him. And so Isaiah just lays it out on God's behalf. Watch for this man who will not be like a king that you think of when you think of king, because your world, when it thinks of conqueror, it thinks of power, it thinks of strong, it thinks of of, of violence, right? You overcome. But this king, not going to look like that. So here's what happens. Here's what happens. It gets so strange. John writes in John chapter 1, about the coming of Jesus, and he writes something super weird that, that you look at and you're like, this is, this is strange because considering that we had all that information, this seems like a strange thing to say. Listen to what John says. John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. We're talking about Jesus there. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, Nothing that was made was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? How many of you, when you are caught in darkness, you cannot see, you feel stifled, you feel alone, it's all dark around you, and somebody brings light? How does that feel? Are you excited? Do you want light? Yes, when we are in darkness, what we want is light. And so you read this and you're like, we were in darkness and he brought light. How excited are we going to be? 
very. Except that what you're going to find out in a second is that John says the darkness was not excited. Now you go, well, of course the darkness wasn't excited because the darkness is what the light is taking away so we can be free. Except that what he describes in John in a second is that it wasn't that we were captured or captivated inside of darkness and needed light. We were the darkness. We were the darkness. And when light comes to darkness, darkness hates light. And you say, that doesn't make sense. Oh, it does. Think about this. Have you ever laid in a bed and you're quietly laying there and you feel restful and at peace? It's the morning time. So you recognize that the way you went to bed is not the way you look anymore. Have you ever come to that conclusion? Like, you know, you watch the movies and and, and uh, the husband and wife, they go to bed together, and then the next morning they wake up, and, they, and, they, and, and they, they hang out, and they chat with each other, close quarters, and, and you're like, you guys, you guys had a moment prior to this scene where you got to go doll yourself up and brush your teeth, didn't you? Because in real life, when you wake up next to your spouse, you don't have a close quarters conversation first thing in the morning. Because your hair is disheveled, and you've shed skin all night, so it's not looking good. And whatever makeup you did have on that you didn't get off properly is now in places it doesn't belong anymore. And your eyeliner's everywhere if you put that on. And then your breath, the stuff happened in your mouth all night, and, and now it's all weird. And, and, and like we always say... Who of you want to wake up in the morning? Like, first thing, there it is. Get up. And whatever clothes you had on, they're different now because you got hot, then you got cold, then you got hot, then you got cold. So you're not even sure what you're wearing. And you get out of bed. Who wants to get out of bed to like a surprise birthday party? Like you walk out of your room and you're like, happy birthday. And like all hundred of your friends are there and you're like, ah! Why does that feel so weird? When somebody walks in, they open the curtains like, wakey, wakey time. Light is a terrible thing when it exposes the terrible things that are us and when it sears the eyes that have gotten used to the darkness. When we are used to the darkness and someone opens the curtains, light is not your friend. You hate the light. You cover the, the and you go, not close those curtains, get rid of the sun, it's killing me. And you're like, who just opened the curtains? Is it someone I know? Is it someone I feel safe with? Because they're looking at me at my worst. See, light exposes and light sears. And when you are caught in the darkness and it gets rid of the darkness, that's a gift. But when you are the darkness, game changer. Listen to what John says about this reality of the light coming to the world. John chapter 1, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we get this glimpse here where John says, when the light came, the darkness, no, not the darkness, the people who are his people did not receive him. But then he did something 
where they would know him, not something of the will of man, but something of a gift of God. Now look what he says next. This is where it sort of starts making sense. Um, In John chapter 3, whoops, I don't have it in here, so let's go to the paper Bible for a second. In John chapter 3, verse 19, John writes something else that's fascinating about this conundrum we're in, and it starts helping us understand why, despite the fact that we had Isaiah and other passages, and we should have recognized Jesus and received him with great joy, we actually did the opposite. Look at this. This is what John chapter 3, verse 19 says. And this is the judgment. Like this is the, this is the reality. This is what stands against us, right? Listen to this. The light came into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest their works should be exposed. Now, we say immediately, oh, I agree, man. The evil people were really, really bummed when Jesus came. See, what the Bible describes, though, is that the way we define evil deeds, evil people versus good people, is not actually what the Bible is talking about here, though it includes perhaps evil deeds, the way we define them. What it's talking about is the fact that our value system Our nature as a human race infected with sin and our nature and value system uh, infected by death had become something opposed to life and light. So what we value, what we went after, though at times might look like not evil, it was always bent on self-preservation, self-need, self-focus. It is the truth. Us humans are strange We are about ourselves. Our very brains and bodies are designed to survive at all costs practically. That's why the Bible says things like, for you to like lay your life down for another, it's almost accidental. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you're like, it's a shocking moment where you didn't think straight. Or it's like your child, you know, but while you like them. You're like, what? I I would die for my child all the time. Maybe, maybe. Probably, but at the end of the day, it takes this shocking reality for us to overcome the self-need for preservation. And we do that in everything. We are a selfish people bent on self-preservation, looking for ways to meet our own needs. When we get married, we say, it's about loving another person, but it's really about being loved. How do I know? Because the second you're not loved well, you're sitting in someone's office, perhaps mine, going, I want that one out person doesn't know what they're doing. You know how rare it is that I sit with someone saying, I'm really just struggling. I just want to love my friends and my spouse better, my children. I'm, I'm sure I'm just terrible at it. And then you're like, that's me. I do that. Yeah, but what I found is the people that like are bent on feeling terrible because they're not doing a great job, they just have a different personality where their need is to be needed and they don't feel super needed because they're not doing a good job or their need is to accomplish things and they're not accomplishing them super well. So they're getting bent out of shape and disrupted because they're not good enough. That's actually a selfish reality, not a selfless reality. See, what I'm saying is this, what the Bible begins to describe is that when God's kingdom showed up in Jesus, everything about God's kingdom 
had a different set of values than ours. And so instead of receiving the light and embracing it, it became for the human race something that the propensity, in fact, no, not the propensity, the end result was that we were inevitably going to reject the light. And the light was our freedom. The light was our life. The light was our future. And we were going to reject it because we couldn't tolerate its value system. Because here's the deal. When Jesus came, it was weird. Just, just sit with me for a second. The reason we don't think when Jesus came, the things he didn't said are weird is because we've gotten used to his kingdom. And it's a beautiful thing. Don't get me wrong. But there comes a time where we have to sort of remind ourselves of what it was like to be in New York City before Elf showed up. You know what I'm saying? Let's say we're in the North Pole now with Elf and we're like, oh my gosh, I love spaghetti with like M&Ms now. We have to sometimes step back and say, do you remember when you didn't? Do you remember when it wasn't the same? You see, when the people of the day when Jesus arrived, that kind of time space, when they read these Old Testament passages, you know what they did with them? They adjusted them like we all do to match whatever their expectations or agendas were on what the Messiah would bring them. If you were the Pharisees of the time of Jesus, you assumed the Messiah was coming to make everyone righteous, meaning to, to, to correct them to behave. Because the Pharisees, that whole group of people were like, as soon as we are exactly righteous before God and prove to him that we're worthy, then he'll come and, and set up his kingdom and judge all the other nations. If you were the Essenes, then you were like, when Jesus comes, he's going to pull us from society. He's going to shove all the rest of society into a prison somewhere. And he's going to set us free. Because the Essenes were like, go in the desert, get away from everyone because they'll influence you badly. The zealots were like, when Jesus comes, he's going to be a powerful uh, warrior and we're going to go blow up Rome. Because the zealots were like, we take by force that which is against us. The Sadducees, they were the political party, the Jewish political party. And they were like, well, Jesus is going to come and he's going to be a master of words and he's going he's to influence Rome. And then we're going to have all the Roman power and it's going to become our power. And then the people were just like, I'm poor and they take my taxes. When Jesus comes, is he going to get rid of Rome and set us free so we can live normal lives? See, when people read this weird collision of a king, a mighty God, but one who would suffer and struggle, take on affliction, what does that mean? They each interpreted whatever it was that they thought he needed to be for them. And when he showed up, and he wasn't any of the things for any of the people that they thought he should be. He showed up with a kingdom that looked nothing like any of them had designed as a person who looked nothing like any of them designed. Who did he disappoint? All of them. Because they were all like, oh, you, you're not like me. And then suddenly the tables turned and they were like, oh, this is good, but too good. You know that feeling? You're up to something. What are you trying to take from me? Why are you here? You watched it happen in the life of Jesus. When he showed up, it started weird, right? The king is coming. And how did he come? In like a little town in Bethlehem, born in a, in a, in a manger because there wasn't even a, 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 an Airbnb available. Legit. And, and then after he was born, like there was no declaration from heaven to the entire planet. There was a, a little song to a couple of shepherds by a few angels. And then after he was born, 
he's whisked off to Egypt because some king of the day, Herod, is trying to kill him. And instead of like the God of the universe coming down and saying, Herod's trying to kill Jesus, well, let's just kill Herod. No, it like plays out. And Jesus has to be whisked off to Egypt. And then when he comes back from Egypt, he goes back to his hometown, a town called Nazareth. You know what they say of Nazareth in the Bible? It's not even like the towns, like if, you, if I said to you, where are you from? And you're like, I'm, I'm, from, I'm from Buttress. I just made that up, by the way. Um, so if you are from a town called Buttress, I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just saying I just made that up. But, and then I'll go, where's Buttress? And you're like, oh, you know, it's an hour and a half northwest of Atlanta, just across the border. And I'm still confused, right? I'm like, oh, that town. Nazareth wasn't even that town. It actually had a reputation. Here's what its reputation was. If you come from Nazareth, you are no good because nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And that's where God determines to place himself as he prepares to become our Messiah. He spends years in obscurity in the one town that has the reputation. Nothing good can come out of that place. And you know what he does when he's there preparing? The Bible tells us. Uh, he has this like group of ninjas and they prepare him to be like an incredible ninja fighter. And then, and we watch in the movie. No, he does woodwork. He's a carpenter's son. He does woodwork. The king of kings spends a great deal of time doing woodwork. And then at 12 years old, he's in the temple in Jerusalem for a particular event. And he starts teaching as a 12-year-old. And it turns out he's a prodigy. He's brilliant. He, he baffles the minds of the best rabbis of the day. In our culture, folks, and the culture of the world, what happens when we discover a prodigy? What happens when we discover an amazing thing? We immediately like, oh, we're going to do this. You know what Jesus does after he gets discovered? He disappears into obscurity back in Nazareth. It makes no sense. If you're going to be the God of the universe, make yourself known. Show yourself. Use your powers. That's how our world works. He didn't. When he finally shows up at 30 and he makes himself known, it gets weirder. It does. First thing he does, he goes to Nazareth and he kind of has a little elf moment there. He goes into the uh, synagogue and he reads out of Isaiah that the spirit of, the God, of God is, is upon him and he's going to set everyone free. And he says, by the way, I'm this dude and I've come to set you free. And you know what the people do? The same as they do in Elf, they arrest him. Because they're like, you're claiming to be from another kingdom, from God. That's not possible. And they try to stone him. And then he starts doing stuff after that. They don't get to stone him, by the way, because he walks through the crowd. We think invisible. We're not sure. But the Bible literally just says they were trying to stone him and he just kind of walked away. And I'm like, I want to know. I want to know how that went down. <laughs> but he starts doing incredibly crazy stuff. He teaches things that people can't fathom. Sometimes they go, oh, that's wonderful. And sometimes they go, oh, that's terrible. But one thing they say all the time, who is this person that teaches like nothing we've ever heard of a place and a kingdom that is nothing like ours? You've heard it said that you shouldn't murder someone. But man, when you have anger in your heart, you are already in, what? That's, that doesn't sound like our kingdom. Over and over again, he starts giving us new paradigms. Hard ones, beautiful ones, but different ones. It's like watching Elf spin through a door and then pull some gum off and you're like, what's going on? And what you don't know is it's just the magical value system of the North Pole playing out. The gum is weird, I'll give you that. <laughs> and then Jesus begins to do 
in a rhythm other weird stuff that you, you, you don't even notice in the Bible until you start paying attention, like in what Elf did, uh, on the contrast between our world and his. Here's an example, just an example, something I discovered recently as I was looking at the contrast between our world and Jesus' kingdom. You remember the rich young ruler? If you've been in church for a while, you probably know this story, right? Some, some kid comes up to Jesus and he's described as a rich young ruler, okay? That's money, influence, and youth. If, I'm, I'm going to say this out loud, so brace yourselves, okay? If you're a ministry leader, right? You have a ministry on the planet and, and you want your ministry to succeed. What are some things that would be very, very helpful to have? Money? Money? <laughs> influence? Yeah. And youthfulness because you can influence youthfulness. No offense to all you young folk. You're amazing and you are independent and I can't influence you, but I'm just saying, theoretically speaking, that is an, uh, an easy play. So if a if a rich, young ruler comes to you as a ministry leader and your ministry is just emerging, what do you say to the rich, young ruler when the rich, young ruler says, I'd like to follow you, what do I need to do? Our world has a way. Here's Jesus' way. Uh, why don't you leave for a while, sell everything you have, get rid of it all, and when you have nothing left, come see me and we'll do ministry together. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. It opposes the way we think. He did this all the time. He went into places that everybody else avoided. He forgave sins when nobody else knew what to do. He, I mean, the whole journey with Jesus in the New Testament is like, what's going on? This guy's crazy. When, when the kids showed up, they're at an event you know, the kids come into the, to the little sacred place and they're bouncing on the chairs and they're playing hide and seek and they're doing their stuff. And the disciples are like, this is disrupting all the important adults. And they're like, get the kids out of here. What does Jesus say? Oh, oh, oh where, where, are you, where are you taking the kids? Well, we need to get them out. Look at what they're doing. They're running on the church chairs. <laughs> I, I, I made church chairs for kids to run on. He didn't say that, but that's what I say. But then Jesus said, no, 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 no. No, no, leave them with me. Don't you ever, 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 ever stand between me and them. In fact, Jesus said, adults pay attention. If you want to know what my kingdom is like, then pay attention to them. They know what they're doing in ways you don't. And you've matured too, don't get me wrong, but you've lost some of what my kingdom is like. You see, everything Jesus did just stood in contrast to all this. And here's what becomes important. Just walk with me here, because remember, we're walking through a Christmas season to prepare our minds and our hearts to be in awe of what he has done for us. That's what we're doing here. So just, just follow this track now. So here we are. We have an opposing kingdom. We have a Jesus that's weird, does weird stuff. We have an agenda of our own. Uh, what's he going to take from us, whether you're the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, people, or us? All of us are in the same boat. And we have every reason, according to Scripture, to reject the, the, the light and live in our darkness. That's where we're at, right? And then we find out that Jesus does something extraordinary. Before he dies, which is going to get even weirder. Can we just go there for a second? The conquering king is about to conquer by dying. You all seem like that sounds normal to you. When he died, the disciples that had been under his tutelage run and hid because they thought the game was over. 
And Jesus had literally told them, I'm going to die. And when I die, remember Isaiah, I'm going to take on your iniquities. It's all going to happen. And then when it happens, they're like, what happened? He's been defeated. We're going to die. And this is Jesus. In John chapter 14, 15, and 16, Jesus is at, a, at the last supper. We call it that also lovingly. Um, with the, the, the disciples before his crucifixion. And he just told them in John 13, hey, I'm, I'm going to go somewhere where you can't go because I'm going to die. And Peter's like, I'm going there. And Jesus is like, you're so cute, but not, not today. And then they're all like troubled. They're like, what are you talking about? What does this mean? We want to go with you. And John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled, boys. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I, I would not have told you that I go and prepare, prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to myself. So he says, where I'm going, I'm not leaving you. I'm going to do something that needs to be done to set you free. But I'm going to die. And then he says this. This is so crazy. In same John chapter 14, verse 15, he says, Um... And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. So what does Jesus now say? You are still stuck in not understanding who I am, but that's okay because I'm going to give you a helper, and the helper is going to do something for you so that you can see. Because remember, the disciples still didn't see. Here they are, the light is standing right in front of them and they still can't see. Look at this, look at this. Then he writes this. Verse 12 of chapter 16. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So now Jesus says, I know my kingdom opposes yours. I know it makes no sense. And I know you can't see that. So the inevitable end is that you're going to reject me because you are darkness and you hate the light. Own that for a second. And then he says this, but I'm going to give you my spirit and he's going to awaken you and he's going to show you all sorts of things so you get to the end of the movie so that you see the sleigh and the reindeer. And when you do, you're going to be like, what? Oh my goodness. This is a kingdom that's value system is the kind of weird I want. I want you to hear when I say this. You and I didn't even have the capacity to wake up enough to embrace the light when it came and faced us face to face. It is an act of his mercy that you even see rightly. And in seeing rightly, what you and I discover as the Spirit of God unfolds the New Testament for us, explaining in detail what all the weirdness was all about, telling us why Jesus did it the way he did. Here's what we discover. He was not only coming to conquer sin and death on our behalf, because he could have done that coming in as a reigning king. That he was in a temple or in a, in a palace separate from us and we came and bowed down before him. He could have done that. But he was up to more. 
He was here to conquer sin and death and he did that squarely and completely with all of his power and justice and might in a way that satisfied everything necessary so that our sins would not be held against us. But he also did that in a way that allowed him to come and be with us as we did life together so that his saving of us from sin and death was simultaneously also a joining with us in life so that we were both free because of his salvation, his great work of redemption, and safe because of his witness, his presence with us. The Bible describes this season, the Christmas season, as a season that represents the coming to be with us of Jesus. The Easter season represents the finishing work of what he came to do, but this season is about what? Not just the work of our salvation, but the being with us. Our king came the way he did so that he could say to us with absolute certainty, I'm right here with you. We walk into a Christmas season that is about last week, a king who conquered sin and death on our behalf. You should celebrate that the rest of your life every second because without that work, you and I are dead. But we also have a king who somehow managed by his kingdom to show up in that way that was Emmanuel so that we have a best friend and a king, a conqueror and a fellow sufferer, a pilgrim and a leader, all simultaneously bringing us a kingdom that every value system opposes darkness and death. And as it invades our lives and our kingdom, we start breathing life instead of death, light instead of darkness, freedom instead of bondage. And we do it progressively because his Spirit made us see. And listen to this. Listen to this. John writes in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Don't you love that word among us? Not like on our planet. He came and he was on the planet. Where? Somewhere. In a secret bunker. No, he came and he dwelt where? Among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We have seen God. We should not be able to see God. And look at this. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. This is John speaking. And he says this, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only God, Jesus, whom is at the Father's side, has now made him known. He didn't just come to conquer sin and death. He came to show us God by showing up. And then his spirit tells us, you know where all this is going? You know where all this is going, folks? Do you want to know? Because I can tell you the end of the story. You see, we are recipients, in this case, of the whole elf movie while we're in the middle of it. We're in the middle of it where he's running around New York a little weird, right? The culture looks at us, we're a little weird because we follow a value system that's super weird. But we know the end of the movie. And listen to the end of the movie. This is what it says. Revelation 21 
verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Listen now. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The Christmas season is a space in which we ought to bend our hearts and minds to this, that we will be a people who have the God of the universe dwelling with us, that we are the recipients of a kingdom of light, life, and freedom because when Jesus came, he did not come in any way like we would have expected him to because his kingdom is nothing like ours and his way is nothing like ours and light is nothing like darkness. And his greatest mercy to us is that despite the fact that we were darkness and would have rejected that entire wondrous thing, not by the will of man, but by the gift of God, he awakened our souls and helped us see. And you are now a people of seeing. And in the seeing, you ought to revel like you do in the Elf movie as it unfolds going, just wait until you get to the end and see he's actually from the North Pole. And it'll all make sense. Everything that didn't will. We already have that. We already have that. So this Christmas, let us go this week. Walk around all week long. Remember last week and say, God, I'm still grateful that you conquered sin and death and set me free. But I'm now also grateful that you gave me the privilege to see who you actually are. And you are progressively allowing your weird kingdom to become my weird kingdom. Because it's the kind of weird I want. Let us go and follow Jesus into Christmas, becoming more enamored by what we are recipients of than we have ever been as we come to a day that we celebrate his coming to set us free, make us see, and be with us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your extraordinary, gracious, and amazing love for us. And just be with us as we enter this week. Show us the way to have our minds and hearts bent on remembering that because you came as light into not only a world that was darkness, but to a human race that was darkness, us, we should not even see the light. We should be hiding from the light under the covers, continuing in our pursuit of our value systems. And yet you broke through by your spirit, awakened our souls and showed us the way so that you might say those who believe in me will now be children of light, children of life, my children. God, may those of us that know and follow you find this week to be one that stirs awe in us again over what you've done for us. And for those here that don't yet know you, Shine, Spirit of God, light and awaken them so that they might see what we see and know the wonder 
of a kingdom that, yes, is weird and nothing like ours, opposes so much about what we think is safe and good and right. And yet, when we live in your kingdom with your kind of weird, all we end up finding constantly is what our souls have longed for all along. Show us the way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.